Well, if you have your Bibles, please open up to the book of Revelation and then turn to the left one book and you'll find Jude. Revelation is the last book in the Bible. thought it'd be easier to do it that way than to tell you where to find it. Um, I'm excited to uh, preach this morning. You'll find, if you spend any amount of time here, that I'm just a teacher in a preacher's body. So when we do introduction to books like this, uh, I get a little giddy. If I had my druthers, I'd have a whiteboard right here, but it would be so messy you wouldn't be able to read it, but I have requested that that happen someday. I will get there, so we'll see. This morning we are starting a new series in the epistle of Jude, but I want to start by talking about something found in the gospel of Matthew to set the stage a little bit for uh, where we're headed. In the Gospel of Matthew, um, the Apostle uh, records Jesus teaching various parables. One of the parables you may or may not be familiar with uh, speaks about the kingdom, many do, but compares the kingdom of God with a man who sows good seed in a new field. And in the story that he tells, as the man's workers are sleeping at night, having sown a bunch of wheat seed into the field, An enemy comes and sows weeds among the wheat that they just planted. And over time, the wheat grows up, but so do the weeds with it, surprising the servants. And the servants go to the master and say, wow, didn't you have good seed? And he actually um, surprisingly responds with full knowledge of actually what happened, because they offer to pull all the weeds out. And his response is, again, surprising. But the master says, actually an enemy has done this, he knows about it. And so the servant said to him, well, do you want us to go and gather all these weeds out? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you actually root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn." seems kind of a strange method, uh, but there is a method to what this madness might be. Um, Not that you ever do this, but uh, if you've ever seen a wheat, uh, you know, piece of wheat and a tear or a weed, they look pretty similar. They're hard to actually tell the difference. I wouldn't have been able to tell the difference. Looks like wheat on the left to me. I have no clue. Uh, And so it might give you some insight into what is going on here. And why the master might say, well, you might accidentally pull up wheat as well. So it's leave them to grow together. Paul describes the church as a field at one point in his letter. And it seems like in the field of God, there are both wheat and weeds. And God knows that. Add that to the next piece uh, in Acts chapter 20. So if you are familiar with the book of Acts, the book of Acts is a second volume of a two-volume set written by Luke. The Gospel of Luke tells the story of the birth, life, and death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and Acts chapter 2 talks about what happens in the disciples' response to that amazing uh, moment in history. And the church kind of story is told from Acts chapter 1 through 28. In Acts chapter 20, uh, we have Paul gathering one of the churches he's planted. So if you know who the Apostle Paul is, in Acts chapter 9, he was a persecutor of the church, whom Jesus saves, and he becomes one of the most 
uh, prominent leaders of the church, missionaries, going through uh, several different missionary journeys that are recorded through the book of Acts as he goes and makes disciples and plants churches and preaches the gospel. Uh, he wrote half of the New Testament. Uh, and so in Acts chapter 20, he gathers the Ephesian elders from the church of Ephesus that he planted, he had spent much time with. He gathers them in a different city to talk with them. And he's kind of given them a, a final farewell because he knows that he is being sent to Jerusalem, which ultimately he knows he'll be sent to Rome, which ultimately he expects that he would likely die, which he is one day beheaded in Rome. But in Acts chapter 20, he gathers together as kind of a final farewell. They cry and he kind of tells them what's going on and, and reminds them what's most important. And he tells them something that's quite interesting, warning them about the future. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, from within the church, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Again, weeds in the wheat. Now, again, when Paul writes his second letter to the city of or the church in Corinth, um, which was written about 55 A.D., which is only about 20 years, give or take, after uh, Jesus' ascension or resurrection, which 20 years doesn't seem like that far away. You remember Y2K, right? That was 20 years ago when people freaked out for no reason. But uh, it's a very short time. And I say that because when Paul is writing, we're, we're talking about the first churches, like the early church and the issues that were going on there, the things they were facing. But in this letter to one of the earliest churches, a church in Corinth, Paul reproves, he admonishes a people that he loves, and he admonishes them because he says, you guys have been already led astray from pure devotion to Christ by false teachers. He's a little frustrated. False teachers have come in. And this is what he writes. He says, if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you have received a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. In other words, he's saying in this early church, you're putting up with accepting, even believing in a different Jesus, a different gospel, and a different spirit. This is in the early church. Now, since the earliest days of the church, it seems, Satan has been masquerading as an angel of light. He continues to do that today in the evil of all kinds of different gospels. Some of those you may be familiar with, the prosperity gospel. The evil of uh, that is pretty well known. We'll talk about that. The social gospel, the permissive grace gospel, the new age gospel, the sexual preference gospel, and many, many more. These false gospels, along with their false saviors and spiritual sounding teachings, which Paul calls demonic, they've infiltrated the church. And they've been infiltrating the church for some time. And they have led to many making a shipwreck of their faith. Tears, 
wolves, and idols. We are living in what Paul has described, as well as other apostles, the last days. When people continue to exchange the truth of God for a lie, and more so, they begin to seek out teachers to affirm whatever they feel as right and to tell them whatever they want to hear. We live in the end times where people no longer just reject Jesus. In fact, people and even pastors remake Jesus into a lobbyist for their own personal world view. The book of Jude was needed for a time such as this, and it was written at a time very similar to this. As Solomon so aptly says in Ecclesiastes, there really is nothing new under the sun. Jude is a very short, but it is an incredibly powerful book. It's a little rough. It's pretty hard-hitting. It's very passionate, and it calls Christians to understand the dangerous times in which they live. And in those times, it compels them to hold on to what are timeless truths, the timeless faith that has been entrusted to us for our generation, passed on by those who've come before us. Now, What I think is most notable about Jude is that he doesn't really call us to contend with the world. We often talk about maybe fighting the pressures of the world, the temptations of the world, which are certainly very genuine and real. But Jude, for his part, is not talking about contending with the world as much as contending in the church with certain persons, the Bible describes, who have crept in among us, the tares among the wheat, the wolves among the sheep. These are the so-called believers, the even so-called pastors, that Jude does not describe with very flattering language. He describes them as false, ungodly blasphemers, as perverted men and women, as ministers out for personal gain, as fruitless grumblers, as loudmouth malcontents, as worldly wanderers who are dividing the church in the name of Christ and are, in fact, devoid of the Spirit of Christ themselves. This is what Jude is about. Jude is warning us about following these kinds of teachers, but he's actually also warning us about becoming that kind of teacher or that kind of church. Now, the call to contend, which is the title of our series, to stand firm on the truth, to fight the good fight of faith, is not just the responsibility of the professional pastor or the super-Christian. We easily dismiss our own responsibility that actually Judah's writing is for all Christians, for anyone who confesses Jesus as Savior and Lord. You have a call, a command to contend. But in order to fulfill that calling, in order to 
be able to contend for the truth in the body of Christ against falsehood, we must first contend for some truth in our own hearts. There's a fight that needs to start right here against our own flesh, specifically as it relates to the lordship of Jesus and the salvation of Jesus and the mission of Jesus. The fight starts here before you open your mouth with anybody else. So let's take a look at these first two verses that you might, maybe if you were studying Jude, just read over as insignificant. We're going to stop and dig deeply into them. Verse 1 of Jude, which there are no other chapters but the one. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called... Beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. This is God's word, and it is a powerful word for certain, though you may not think that when you first read it. Let's talk about the kinds of things that we need to contend for. The first thing that I think we need to contend for in our own hearts, against our own flesh, is for the lordship of Jesus Christ in our own life. Now the author of this letter identifies himself as some dude named Jude. Hey, that rhymes. I didn't even know it. A servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. There's a lot of information there. Jude, the name is short for Judas, not that Judas, which is The Greek form of Judah, Jude is a rather common name actually, and it means praised or celebrated. When you understand who is writing though, it might be surprising because this particular Jude is seemingly trying to avoid any praise for himself or celebration for who he is. Scholars agree that Jude, this one who is writing, is actually one of the half-brothers of Jesus. According to the book of Matthew, you may not know this, but Jesus was the oldest in a relatively large family of brothers and sisters. Apparently, after the supernatural birth of Jesus, Joseph Joseph and Mary had other natural children, which all became half-siblings of Jesus, because Joseph was really not Jesus' father. This included, according to the gospel, four brothers that are named. One is named James, one is named Joseph, one is named Simon, and one is named Jude. Now, the apostle John, in his gospel, records that none of his brothers believed in him. That during his ministry, they were none too impressed, even perhaps a little embarrassed by their brother Jesus. The Bible doesn't say why they didn't believe. We can imagine things. I like to think about how difficult it might have been to be a sibling to the perfect son, right? Oh, Jesus did everything right, right? And we have to imagine that Joseph and Mary, maybe similar to 
Jacob and his affection for Joseph in the Old Testament had a special affection for their son. Certainly the miracle of his birth was important and amazing, but Joseph and Mary had both been told by angels that this was the one who would save the world from sin. This was the one who would be the king of Israel. And so they naturally had a special affection for Jesus, we can imagine. But his family, namely his siblings, were not fans. Perhaps this gives us insight into why Jesus himself had said that a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and even, he said, your own household. He knew that very well. He knew what it was like to be marginalized in his own home by his own siblings. But all of that changed, it seems. And it changed because of the foundation, the truth that is the foundation of the Christian faith, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is where Jesus proved he was who he said he was, and he did what he said he had come to do. Paul makes this point in 1 Corinthians 15. When he talks about after Jesus rose from the dead, he says he then appeared to Cephas, who's Peter. Then he appeared to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some had died. And he says, then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. James, his half-brother, who didn't believe in him, suddenly did. And it's because of the resurrection. James and Jude, perhaps even Simon, uh, his other brothers, perhaps they all became ministers. We kind of seem to see that James and Jude did. Paul talks about the fact that as apostles are going around, he's arguing and defending his own ministry and the right of them to be supported. And he says something that's curious that, again, we may read over. He says, do you not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord? So the brothers of the Lord, the half-brothers of the Lord, have become, it seems, itinerant ministers, going around ministering, preaching, teaching, proclaiming the gospel. Two of his brothers, James and Jude, um, James, his half-brother, is not to be confused with James, the brother of John, who was beheaded by Herod in the early days of the church. James, Jesus' half-brother, did become a leader of the church and did write the epistle of James that we have. His youngest sibling, Jude, wrote the epistle that we're studying this morning. But it's interesting, James and Jude, for their part, as they introduce each of their epistles, they don't emphasize what seems like a pretty privileged relationship. I'm the half-brother of Jesus, right? Seems like that'd be an easy card to drop whenever it was convenient. On the contrary, both of his brothers avoid. They make an effort not to mention it. Instead of declaring something about themselves like, Jude, 
the brother of our Lord Jesus. They declare something about Jesus that actually reveals something about how they identify themselves. James says in his epistle, which you can turn and look if you'd like, he says, James, I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, technically, relationally, he's talking about his brother, but he doesn't say that. I am a servant of God and a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude, for his part, as we see today, he says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, brother of James, who's also a servant of Jesus Christ. Some translations make this word out to be bondservant. If you have, like the NASB, for example, it probably has that. A few other translations would have slave. So when we think about how Jude identifies himself, I'm Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ, a servant of Jesus Christ. Jesus' own brothers say, Jesus is my Lord, Jesus is my master, I am his servant. That's how they start this letter. And my question for myself as I was studying this is how I would introduce myself, right? That's an easy question to ask, perhaps a more difficult one to answer. It's easy to say, well, I'm Sam, wife of Caitlin. Wife, that would not make sense. (laughs) But in our world today, you need to clarify such things. But I could, right? I'm the husband of Caitlin. I'm the father of Fisher and Landon and Emerson Hudson and Everly. I am the pastor of Restoration Road Church. What would you say? We think what naturally we want to say is probably how we naturally perceive ourselves in what is most primary in our lives. I don't think you're going to be writing a letter to a church real soon. But is our natural inclination to say, who are you? I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I am. It's even different than saying I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. It's different than saying I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, which are still good things to say. But to begin with, I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sets the tone for everything. And that's how his brothers describe themselves. Now, this is the first truth that I think we need to contend for. This is actually the most important truth that we need to contend for before we open our mouths and contend against or for anything else. It's interesting in the great apologetic verse that is used to talk about defending the faith, to have an answer, a defense, right, that Peter so aptly talks about. Always being ready to make a defense for everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Always be ready. Always defend. The first thing that we maybe tend to skip over that he says prior to that. This is out of the NASB, sanctify Christ as Lord. Set Jesus Christ apart as Lord and then make a defense. Before we can fulfill our call to contend, before we can provide a defense for the faith, before we uh, confront false teachers 
in and among us, we must set apart Jesus as Lord in our own hearts over our own lives. Quite simply, I've heard it said, character matters in contending. If we are not living under authority, if we do not see ourselves as owned and ruled by Jesus, we cannot contend rightly. And if we are calling people to submit to the Lord Jesus, and we ourselves are not submitted to the Lord Jesus, we are guilty of the very hypocrisy that the Lord Jesus often condemned. How you live governs everything, even how your contention is received. And I don't mean fighting, but I mean you're defending, you're standing for the truth, how it's even understood. See, Jude didn't get a free pass because he was the brother of Jesus. And none of us get a free pass to neglect the lordship of Jesus in our lives because we've been Christians a long time. Anyone can call themselves a Christian. Jesus didn't call us to go, hey, I'd like you guys to label yourselves Christians and then kind of live how you want, but just identify with me would be great. It seems to me that many of us neglect the lordship of Jesus in our life because we've been Christians a long time. We did our time on the mission field or serving God in this way or that way. Or maybe because you're in or I'm in vocational ministry. You realize that a pastor can neglect the lordship of Jesus in his life and be guilty of all kinds of hypocrisy. If Christians are going to call people to follow Christ, they'd better follow Christ. So as we talk about you know, the call to contend, it starts with just ourselves. If you're going to invite people, call people, you know, preach at people to, con- to submit and follow the Lord Jesus, you better be submitted and following the Lord Jesus yourself. If you're going to call people to repent, you ought to be living a life of repentance. If you're going to call people to reject falsehood, then you ought to be upholding the truth without compromise, regardless of cost. I was reminded what the Irish evangelist Gypsy Smith, which I think his first name was Rodney, actually, but Gypsy sounds so much better. He once said it this way. There are five Gospels. No, he wasn't teaching falsely. There are five Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Christian. And some people, dare I say, most people will never read the first four. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Christian. Your life is a gospel proclaiming truth or lies about who Jesus is and what he has done. And many people are reading it often. We must contend first for the lordship of Jesus in our own lives if we're going to contend anywhere at all. But Jude doesn't stop there. The first point to contend in ourselves is the lordship of Jesus, but the second point to contend in our own hearts and our own souls is for the salvation of Jesus. Jude writes this, To those who are called, 
Those who are beloved, or you can just think loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. The second half of this first verse, we're only in half of the first verse. That's how slowly and deeply we're going to go through this bad boy, right? Full of meaning. Jude doesn't identify a specific church or an individual that he's writing to. Instead, he seems to be writing generally to all Christians. Perhaps his epistle would be circulated as he traveled or on his behalf. Personally, I believe that Jude wrote this particular thing because he actually wanted to write a different letter. And he says as much in Jude chapter 3. Sorry, verse 3. He says, Beloved, which we'll deal with three next week, but just this part. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. He says, this is what I wanted to write about. I wanted to write about the common salvation, the things that we share in Christ. Those things that are unique, special, powerful, important for us to remember. But instead, he writes a letter about contending against false teachers that are in the church. But I believe that the second half of verse 1 is a summary, perhaps, of what he wanted to write on. It's shorthand, if you will, about this salvation. Quite simply, every morning and evening, just as we are called to pray, to set our minds on the things that are above so that our minds are not set below by life, I believe that we need to begin and end our days by preaching ourselves the gospel. Preaching the truth of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel, the hope of the gospel to ourselves. And you go, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is good news. It's the good news of what God has done for us through the life, death, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. It's the good news that Jesus has fixed the relationship that we broke. It's the good news that is not advice. It's not the instruction on here, the four steps so that you can make sure you're a better person. It's actually news to be believed, a declaration to be received, something that declares what God has done. And so here, this is what Jude emphasizes. He's emphasizing those who are called by Jesus, those who are loved in Jesus, those who are kept for and will later see by Jesus. He wants to focus us on what is most important as he goes into this letter about contending, because we can get lost in contending. There's a reason why Paul so often tells leaders and pastors and Christians, don't be quarrelsome. We begin with salvation. We begin with those who are called. It wasn't even be called. It's a word that's been used and overused and abused and employed in all kinds of ways. Well, those who are in Christ in terms of salvation are called by Christ. And to be called is not merely invited. It is to be appointed irresistibly by God, adopted into His family, chosen. We see... In his letter to the Ephesians, very famously in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it is for by grace, undeserved favor, that you have been saved through faith. And this 
so Paul makes it clear, is not your own doing. You didn't just figure it out. You weren't smarter than everyone else, stronger or more attractive than everyone else. God chose to show you grace. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works. Why? That no one may boast and all might be grateful. It is God who pursues us, God who rescues us, God who chooses us. In other words, when we talk about our common salvation, the salvation of man is not dependent upon human effort. This becomes really important. Just put that on the shelf for a second. But he also says that we are loved in Christ. We are loved. Not just rescued from slavery to sin. We are loved. We are brought near. There is relationship. And his love is unconditional because it's grounded in someone else. It's based on his deep abiding affection for his son in whom we put our faith. In whom we are hidden for those who have turned from their sin and believed. We don't earn God's love. We receive it through faith by grace. And even though, yes, we can grieve God with our sin, for those who are in Christ, we grieve Him as a Father who still delights in us and still desires to cleanse us and forgive us because we are His adopted children whom He never, ever kicks out of His family. We are loved. Our Father delights in us. He delights in us. He delights on us truly, whether we ever contend at all. But because we simply breathe, He loves us. He feels concerned for us. He is faithful towards us. And so, not only is salvation not dependent, it's not secured by the effort of men. It's not held on, if you will, because of my own love. It's not dependent upon the love of man. It's dependent upon the love of God. Put that on the shelf for a second. And the last thing he tells us, they were kept. We're kept in Christ, by Christ, for Christ. He will say at the end of his letter, that to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... That's Christ. We are kept for Christ, by Christ, and He is keeping us for Himself. He is guarding us. He is protecting us. He is keeping His eye on us, and He will do so until the day that we are with Him face to face. In other words, salvation of man is not dependent upon human endurance on God's faithfulness to keep those he has chosen and loved. Now, summary. We talk about Jude saying, I want to write to you, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation. The big takeaway is that the salvation of man is not dependent upon man. It is a gift of God. It is through the power of God. It is secured by God. Jesus saves me. Jesus delights in me. Jesus keeps me. And so all of this God-centered salvation inspires a God-centered contention. I don't mean fighting, but I mean defending and contending and guarding. It's got to be a God-centered contention. Meaning, I, you, 
No man has the power to save anyone. You must understand where your responsibility and power begins and ends and where God's begins and ends. You don't have the power to change a heart. God does by his word, through his spirit. We do not. That not only gives us um, some comfort, if you will, but I believe also gives us some hope, especially for those who are looking like there's no way that hard-headed individual is ever going to change. And I just say, see Paul, the guy who murdered Christians and then was martyred for being one. We can't save anyone. Jesus saves everyone. That makes us humble, but also confident. Second, we also learn in this God-centered contention that I cannot lose God's love or disappointment or disappoint him in my failures. Yes, he can be grieved. But I delight in God because I know he delights in me even in my weakness. And when I fight for faith, if we say, we say that term, listen to this carefully. In the fight of faith, I know that I fight from God's love and not for it. That's really important. I'm fighting from a position where I'm loved, where I'm approved, where I'm accepted. I'm not trying to fight so that I can impress God or get his approval or earn his love. I'm fighting from a position that is secure eternally. The last thing, and I think perhaps even most importantly, as we see the world getting worse, and it feels like it's getting worse, I'm not sure if it's getting worse since there's nothing new under the sun, or we've just got more visibility to all the badness that's already been there. But truly, it seems to be pretty bad. And even within the church, as you see people, quote, deconverting from Christianity, you begin to be kind of chicken little. Oh no, the sky is falling. The church is falling. Let me assure you that there is nothing to fear. And that is because Jesus is the one that keeps. And he ensures that his chosen children endure to the end. So we don't have to be afraid. There's a quote from a writer, I believe it's James Smith. And he said it well. I know that I am one in whom Christ dwells and delights. I live in a strong and unshakable kingdom of God. It is not in trouble, and neither am I. That is the kind of security we have in the common salvation that we share for those who are in Christ. And so, if we don't preach the gospel, that gospel, those truths to ourselves, before we actually try and stand for truth, you'll be tossed around like a child in a stormy sea. Not only that, if you don't preach the gospel to yourself, you don't remember who is doing the saving and who is doing the loving and who is doing the keeping, you will probably be very reluctant to speak. You may be quarrelsome if you ever say anything. 
and to be very fearful that you've said the wrong thing the wrong way at the wrong time. But when you know the joy of your own salvation and the power that's behind it, you will eagerly fulfill your calling to contend for the truth because you know the one who is truly contending through you. And you will live and you will love and you do all of that without fear. That's where we need to start. Jesus is Lord and He loves me. Jesus is Lord and He saved me. Jesus is Lord and He's kept me. Onto the battlefield. Let's go. No fear. So Judas setting us up in these two couple, these two verses, setting the stage for a letter that's going to be very much about like there are some false teachers and they're bad. You need to contend, but he's like, don't go on the battlefield naked. You got to be set and protected by certain truths. And the last one he talks about containing our own heart is what he says in verse two. He says, "May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you." May these things be reproduced among you. Most of Paul's letters begin with a a similar salutation, some combination of grace or mercy or peace or love. And here Jude says mercy, peace, and love. And there's a reason why he says this. If you understand that he's writing to a people and a church that is dealing with all kinds of false teaching coming in, and he's going to call them to contend, he wants to actually re-emphasize the fact that God is centered in salvation. It's all about God. So as they contend, they are responding to how God has treated them. Here's what I mean. These three things, mercy, peace, and love, they could be considered pillars in the house of salvation. What is mercy? Mercy is not receiving deserved punishment justifiable punishment. And this is foundational to salvation. All men are saved because even though they are hostile enemies toward God, He shows mercy. He does not give men what they deserve. In fact, His mercy is not just, ah, we'll just forget sin. We'll just kind of pretend that didn't happen. No, His mercy is seen in that he takes his justified wrath and he pours it out on someone else for us. He actually gives us undeserved mercy and he gives his son undeserved wrath for us. Through his sacrifice, through his mercy, which results in Jesus' death, God makes peace with God. And God makes peace with us. We don't make peace with God. God is the one who ensures peace has been made through the blood of the cross. And on the cross, we see this ugly hatred for sin, right? And, and when you think like, well, I'm not, I'm not that bad. You're so bad that Your sin required the death of the Son of God. But you're so loved that the Son of God willingly died on the cross. And so you remember that love and that ugliness, that mercy and that 
grace. That God is the one who shows mercy. God is the one who makes peace with us. God is the one who loves us. Now, Jude's letter and all that is contained in it is to strengthen our faith, but it's actually to inspire us and direct us as we move and share our faith. So these simple truths in this kind of obscure greeting is breathed out by God to equip us to contend the right way, to multiply the right things. We are to multiply mercy and multiply peace and multiply love. So let me explain why he would say this. He says, what what is most important, let this multiply among you. Those who contend are called to multiply mercy. And what does that mean? Well, they're going to be facing all kinds of false teachers and wolves. Wolves don't need mercy. They need a gun. You shoot wolves. Okay? You don't go, oh, wolfy, wolfy. You seem like so nice. Come here, let me pet you. No. Wolves eat sheep. Wolves eat people. You kill wolves. Done. But you don't shoot those who are captivated by wolves. And sometimes we really struggle to tell the difference. We are called to show mercy to those sheep who have been captivated by the wolves. It's very tempting to be quarrelsome. It's very tempting. Hey, we're from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Oh, yeah. Here come the Bible guns. In his go. I know that because I did that for years. And some might argue that they're false teachers, but you spend any amount of time with many of these missionaries and they are just lost young men. And they need mercy. We need to be careful that we're not, or that we are shooting wolves and not shooting sheep. And as we contend to be patient, and showing mercy and gentleness as we speak the truth in love. We also need, as we contend, to multiply peace. I think it goes without saying, but this is nothing new. People and particularly the church is rather divided. There's all kinds of factions in the church based on all kinds of different false teachings. And while we are not allowed to compromise the truth, we must be a people who are peacemaking and not just peacekeeping. Peacekeeping can be done through force. Peacemaking has to be done through relationship. And we are to unify around the truth, not just unity for the sake of unity. But as we show mercy and we work towards peace, we are working towards unity and agreement on the things of God. And yes, there'll be times when we need to divide. But we don't bring unity just by winning arguments in person or online. You know what I mean? I don't see much unity being built online myself. I see a lot of contention in the wrong spirit and not much unity building. Now, the third thing that we are to contend or multiply as we contend is love. I say this one because um, I'm a Bible guy. I'm a doctrine guy. I'm a theology guy. Love it. But the truth is, you can have all your doctrine right and not have love and be all wrong. 
Let's not forget what Jesus wrote, which was read earlier, to the church of Ephesus. Remember the church of Ephesus? The church that Paul warned, fierce wolves are coming. Well, it sounds like they did a pretty good job of shooting wolves. I know your works. Talking to this church. Your toil, your patient endurance. He's complimenting the church. How you cannot bear with those who are evil. What kind of evil? Well, have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So they have battled false teachers. He's like, good job. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake. And you haven't grown weary. You haven't grown tired. You are holding the line. You are standing for the truth. You are contending for the faith. Good job. But I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Now, we could argue about what that means, but what I do know it means is that they have less love than they should. I don't want to be that kind of person, and I don't want to be that kind of church. It's not truth or love, doctrine or love. It's a both and. That's what Jesus calls to. He says, yeah, contend for the faith, but don't be so right that you become characterized and described and identified as that unloving person or church who has their Bible right. I don't want to be the other either. Well, they're screwed up, but they're really loving, right? That's not a good alternative either. So let us close and make it a little more personal. This is a short introduction to Jude, just to set the stage. Two verses that prepare us to contend. But before we fulfill the call to contend, as I said, we need to contend for some stuff in ourselves, and there's some here that need to contend for the lordship of Jesus in your life. It's possible that you have been a Christian for a very long time. It's possible that, unlike Jude, you've reveled in the fact that you know Jesus, that you're in the family. But, Is he Lord of your life? Does he really call the shots? Is his the truth that you truly believe? Is he your master? Are you his servant? If not, it's possible if you're calling yourself a Christian and Jesus is not actually the Lord of your life, that the sermon of your life is doing more harm than good. It's possible. First and foremost, you need to know Jesus as Savior and trust Him as Lord. That's where it begins. Now, there are others here that maybe do acknowledge Jesus as Lord, that believe in His Lordship, but in your life, the Lordship feels dutiful. Service feels difficult, burdensome. You have his lordship, but I would argue that you haven't really understood his love. You haven't understood his gracious salvation. Perhaps you are spending a lot of time dwelling on your failures. Perhaps you are dwelling on your disappointments or your own works or lack thereof. Perhaps you just simply don't love Jesus like you maybe used to. 
I would argue you're probably focusing way too much on your own sin in trying to fix it yourself. And you think, if I follow Jesus, that master, I'll earn his love. You need to preach the gospel to yourself. Before you try to preach to anybody else, go home, look in the mirror, and preach the gospel to yourself. And as I told the men at the men's retreat, tell yourself this. Ready? Maybe Sam Albury said this. There is more grace in Jesus than there is sin in you. There is more grace in Jesus than there is sin in you. I don't want Jesus' lordship in my life nor yours to be dutiful burden, but grateful response. Lastly, there may be some of us that, okay, I know the lordship of Jesus. I even rejoice in my own salvation, but maybe you never quite rejoice enough to defend it or share it with others. Right? It's really special for you in your private little closet. But when someone comes with you false Jesus, you're not offended. Think about this. Jesus is described as a husband to his wife, the church. And if someone came into my home and spoke, if I was a spouse, and spoke about my husband poorly or my wife poorly, would you be okay with that? My hope would be you would say, that's not true. You misunderstand, mischaracterize who my husband is, who my wife is. There must be enough joy and affection for Christ that defending and sharing it is... is like, this is a desire. I want to do this. And when someone comes, you know, with a fake masquerading Jesus, you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not the Jesus that I know. That is not the Jesus of the Bible. That's not Christianity. And there's plenty of opportunity to do that, people. You know it. God has called all of us, and he's equipped all of us with an answer that comes out of our mouth and comes out of our life. And we need to make sure both of them are preaching truth about the true Jesus and the true gospel. Never forget, and we've said this before, and it's not just you know, a mantra for our church, it's a gospel statement. You are restored to restore. It's not just, I'm restored, yes. Jesus made all things new, celebrate, I am awesome. No, it's, yeah. And you have a mission. As we saw at the end of John 17 that we just ended the series on, right? Jesus said, don't, don't take them out of the world. Protect them in your truth. and Send them in and let them preach the gospel. Defend the gospel. Tell about the true salvation that's found in Jesus Christ. Because guess what? That is the message of hope for the world. It is the hope, the only hope for the world. It should be something we're excited to share. And I pray that we will after this series a little bit more. It's called to contend. I pray we'll fulfill it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are, for all that you have done to save us, to redeem us, to rescue us, to free us, Lord. Holy Spirit, I pray you will search our hearts individually right now. 
And even though it's very easy for all of us to see the brokenness around us, the brokenness in the world, even the brokenness in the church, Lord, would you help us to see the brokenness in our own hearts? Before we contend against any false teacher or for any truth, Lord, I pray you help us to contend against our own hearts and our own flesh. First and foremost, for lordship in our life. Lord, be our Lord, be our master, be our king. Help us to follow you, to obey you, to stand for you. Not because, Lord, we are scared of you, but because we are governed by your love. Lord, preach the gospel to our own hearts first. Remind us that we are loved in Christ, that we are kept in Christ, that we are adopted and chosen in Christ. And I pray that that will inspire us with courage and energy and creativity to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Help us to be good stewards of the time that we have been given. It is in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.